Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for coming and uh, worshiping with us. It's been a, a wonderful service so far. Uh, Jim's testimony, I have been one of our elders for a number of years. I didn't know all that detail, and so that really uh, that warmed my heart. And it's good uh, to have uh, Janine's folks here with us. Uh, hard to believe back in 1983 when, when we first met, I never in a million years would have thought of ever being a pastor and how God brings people back together after such a long time is pretty cool. Well, folks, it's been uh, one of those weeks. I simply could not come up with a uh, captivating opening illustration. I always figure, you know, like, like, let me dazzle you in the beginning and then when it goes downhill at the end, it's better that way. And so I was, you know, I was a little bit frustrated, but fortunately, uh, I have my parents to provide me an endless source of sermon illustrations. <laughs> and uh, so, and my dad, he, he delivered on a Friday morning. I, I, we get up, Kathy and I get up, well, I get up very, uh, Kathy gets up very early too. We get up very early in the morning, and you know, one of the first things I do is I look at my phone. It's probably not a good thing to do. But I look at my phone, and I notice that there's a text message from my dad. And this is the text message. He says, this job will need your expertise. We can't connect printer to wifey. <laughs> I do not want to be involved with anything of connecting the computer to my mother. There's something weird going on there. Thinking, Dad, you don't need my computer expertise. You need my marital counseling expertise is what you need. Now, you know, we all realize that's a typo, that he was uh, clearly trying to figure out how to connect his uh, laptop to the, the Wi-Fi printer that he has in his apartment. And so... Uh, we got in touch with my mom and dad, and uh, we, they live over Messiah Village now, over on the other side of the river. They're not just like, you know, two miles from us, and so uh, we don't get to see them as often as we used to, and so it's always nice to be able to head over there uh, to dinner. They've got a nice little restaurant that we go to, so uh, we set that up, and Kathy and I went over there to, you know, solve their computer-slash-marital issues that were going on, and we had this wonderful dinner. And uh, afterwards, we go over to, to their apartment, and, uh, you know, I didn't do anything really magical. I actually turned the power off to the printer and turned it back on, and everything reconnected, and I looked like I really knew what I was doing. And uh, so I did a couple other things around the house, and I was getting ready to leave, and my dad says, hey, I need you to do one more thing for me. And I'm like, okay, what can I do for you, Dad? He says, well, here at Messiah Village, they like to make sure that we keep our passwords secure. And so they're regularly asking us to change our password. And you and I know how that works is they, you know, you go in, you put in your password, and then they ask you to put it in a second time, right? And then, you know, you got to make sure the first time and the second time that they match together, and then you get a new password. And he says, I keep trying to put this password in, but it, it, I can't get the two of them to align with one another. And I said, all right, well, I sit down in front of his computer, and I say, uh, what is the, the password that you want? And he says to me, Mickey, Minnie, Pluto, Huey, Louie, Dewey, Donald, Goofy, Harrisburg. <laughs> Mickey, what? 
straight face. He looks at me, goes, Mickey, Minnie, Pluto, Huey, Louie, Dewey, Donald, Goofy, and Harrisburg. I'm like, why in the world would you put a password in that long? And he said, they told me the password had to be at least eight characters and include one capital. Full disclosure, the wifey thing was true. I adapted that one from the internet, but I thought it was pretty funny. I need a drink of water. Hold on. Oh, my. All right, well, enough of the tomfoolery here. I don't even know what tomfoolery is, but enough of the fun. We need to get busy. If you have a Bible with you, uh, would you open it up to 1 Timothy 6? Uh, we're going to work from uh, the second half of chapter, or verse 2 uh, down to verse 10. If you don't have a, a Bible with you or a Bible on your uh, mobile phone, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Please feel free to, to grab one of those, ask your neighbor to pass one down to you. If you use one of our uh, Bibles we provide, it's on page 993. So it's uh, 1 Timothy 6, starting at the end of chapter, or verse 2 going to 10. And if you're able to stand, if you would do so in honor of God's word, please. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissensions, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, this is an interesting passage because it starts out talking about false teachers, and then very quickly uh, moves to this whole idea uh, about uh, talking about money and the love of money and the damage that does. So, so how do you make sense of this? I mean, in just a matter of a couple verses, you go from false teachers who are wrecking the church to talking about uh, the issue of the love of money. So what does the love of money have to do with false teaching? Well, it turns out that one of the primary motivations behind the false teachers of the first century Christian church, and for that matter, the false teachers of today, is the pursuit of monetary wealth. And that's exactly what we read here in verse 4 and 5. He says, he, the false teacher, is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. 
and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see, the, the, the false teachers of the first century Christian church were motivated by money so much so that they were willing to uh, corrupt the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in an effort to enrich themselves by manipulating people into giving them money. And that is exactly what is meant here by the, this uh, phrase which says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And that, that word gain is typically used from, from a financial sense uh, in the New Testament. So there is no difference, folks, between those false teachers in the first century and the false teachers here in the 21st century who, who fill our television screens and, and YouTube feeds and our earbuds and our Kindle libraries with teachings that are completely contrary to God's word in an effort to, to grow their churches, to solicit contributions, to sell books, fill conference seats, all for the sole purpose of ultimately enriching themselves. But this isn't just about the false teachers who peddle this garbage. It's also about the folks who gobble up their false teaching in hopes that they too can prosper. You see, both the false teacher and the one who puts themselves at the feet of the false teacher are ultimately looking for the same thing. They're looking for, for satisfaction from something other than God. And Webster's Dictionary defines satisfaction this way. It says this, the complete fulfillment of one's needs, expectations, wishes, and desires. And while that's a, a pretty helpful definition there, Webster's doesn't tell us where we can find that satisfaction from. It tells us what satisfaction is, but it doesn't tell us where it comes from. But the Bible is overflowing with teachings that tell us where true satisfaction actually comes from. For instance, John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst." Psalm 107, for he, God, satisfies the longing soul, and the soul, hungry soul, he fills with good things. Psalm 16, you, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, God and his word offers to us true and lasting salvation, or, uh, satisfaction. But he not only offers it, he delivers it. But he's not the only one who offers satisfaction. So does our world. Our world is constantly putting out before us that, that we can find satisfaction. But here's what the problem, the, the, the world fails to deliver, actually the world actually does deliver, it, it delivers in a way that, that doesn't bring satisfaction, it ultimately brings with it despair. And, and that's what brings us to, to the two main points that I think flow out of these verses today. And the first is this, 
that those who seek satisfaction in the things of the world find discontentment and pain. If you look for satisfaction in the things of this world, ultimately at the end of the day, you will find discontentment and pain. The second is this. Those who seek satisfaction in the things of God, they find contentment and joy. So let's kind of break these two down for a moment. Let's look at this whole idea of looking for satisfaction in the things of the world and all of the brokenness that it brings along with it. Paul starts off this section at the end of verse 2. He says, teach and urge these things. And basically what he's doing is he's, he's wrapping up his thought on what he's just taught over the last chapter, chapter and a half, which Pastor Ben and I worked uh, through a couple weeks ago. One was the whole idea that you're supposed to honor widows. The second one is that you're to honor elders. And the third one is that you're to honor those who have you in their employ. But then what happens here, after he does that, then he returns to something that he's addressed before in this letter that, that Mike Bongo talked about, and that was the whole issue of false teachers. And uh, in verse 3, this is what he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and, d- that d- and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So what he's doing is he's telling you, he goes back to this idea of false teachers and then he gives you some characteristics or, or identifying factors about these false teachers. First he says, you can know that the person is a false teacher if the things that they are teaching about do not align with what Jesus teaches. So, so if you're listening to a, 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 a teacher and they're saying things that are contrary to what Jesus has taught, you know that you're dealing with a false teacher. The second thing he says is <clears throat> that also it doesn't align with godliness. But the question becomes then, what in the world is godliness? It's pretty easy to figure out. You look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You can see Jesus' teachings. But what is this thing called godliness that we've got to deal with? Well, author and theologian Philip Towner defines godliness in this way. He says, godliness is Christian existence, which is the balance of faith in God, Christ, the gospel, and the outward life that it produces. In other words, godliness is when you and I have an unwavering faith, unwavering commitment in God the Father, Jesus the Son, God the Spirit, and the Gospel, and that that unwavering faith that we have is actually demonstrated in our lives. So, so not only do we believe in Christ, not only do we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, not only do we believe in the gospel, but we actually live out those beliefs. It's not that, that, that we're a, a, a bifurcated person, but that, we're, that we are unified. You see, godliness isn't simply right belief. It's also right behavior. And not only do we need to believe the right things about Jesus in the Bible, but we need to actually do what Jesus and the Bible tell us to do. But Paul doesn't stop there. After he, he tells you what these characters look like, what these false teachers can be identified by, then what he does is he, he goes and uh, he tells you some of the character, uh, characteristics about the damage 
that they will do. In verses 4 and 5, he says he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So he comes along and he says, first of all, false teachers, they're conceited. That is another word for arrogant. Second thing, they also understand nothing, which basically means that they are ignorant. Now, all of you have been around this world long enough to know that if you take an arrogant person and combine them with the quality of being ignorant, that's a bad recipe. Nothing good comes when you run into someone who is arrogant and who is ignorant. Mark Twain once said this, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. That's what gets you into trouble. The very thing that you're confident of that isn't real is what you get into trouble. Let me give you an illustration of that. Back in, in 1980, uh, I was 15 years old. We were uh, living on Rockford Drive out uh, off of Blue Ridge Avenue in, in Lingelstown. And uh, we had this uh, red 1970s Volkswagen Fastback. Uh, if any of you know what, what that is, it's like a Volkswagen uh, bug that's been stretched out a little bit. And uh, we had this one-car garage, and uh, the, the car was parked in the garage. And I'm an, I'm an only child, so, you know, I didn't have other people to blame stuff on. And so I decided one day, you know, hey, I'm 15 years old. I've watched my dad back this car out of the garage lots of times. Let me give that a shot. So I go out to the garage. I open the garage door. I open the car door. Uh, I put the key in the ignition. I, I've, you know, I watched my dad push the clutch in. So I, I push the clutch in. I, I moved the, the gear stick over, pushed down, and pulled it back. Uh, into reverse, I fired up the engine, and I, I knew my dad just kind of slowly let the clutch out. And I, I slowly leave the clutch out of the car. And like magic, the car backs itself out of the garage. The only thing that I failed to do was close the driver's side door. It is amazing how well the front door of the car can go all the way up to the front fender and the headlight. And on that day, I discovered that arrogance and ignorance, bad combination. Uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money back in those days, and so we couldn't afford to get that door fixed, so... For months, you know, we just like crammed that door shut. There's a big crease in the thing. In order for my dad to get in and out of the car, he had to go through the passenger seat over the gear shift. So, you know, I caused him lots of grief back in the day. Now, when you add to this volatile mix a craving for controversy, a passion to quarrel about words, and then you give a person a platform to influence others, you can be certain 
that very bad things are going to happen. And some of those bad things are detailed there in verse 5. Envy, dissension, slander, even suspicions, and constant friction. You take all of that together. You take a false teacher, you take the Bible, you take a church, you take all of those things together, you mix it together. You know what you get? You get what is known as a toxic church. And some of you in this room have experienced that over your Christian life. You have been in a church where either the pastor or members of the church leadership were false teachers. They were prideful. They believed that they had a a monopoly on the truth. They loved controversy. Because of all that, they typically parsed your every word. And the end result was a church not filled with the Holy Spirit, but one that's filled with dysfunction where people get hurt. Now the question becomes, what in the world would drive someone to do that? What would would motivate a, a person to wreck all of this damage on others and ultimately wreck all this damage on themselves. We find the answer to that at the end of verse 5, and then also down in verses 9 and 10. 1 Timothy 6, 5, at the end it says this, Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. It's 9 through 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, ultimately, men and women who seek to teach God's word to others play fast and loose with God's word because they are seeking satisfaction, the fulfillment of their needs and expectations and wishes and desires, in the things of this world, primarily money. And the false teachers of Timothy's day believed that they could manipulate the the word of God in order to gain cash. And so they do this, why? Because they love money more than they love God. Look again at the beginning of verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now this is one of the most misquoted pieces of scripture. It doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. As if it's wrong to have money. But it does say The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. You see, it's not wrong to have money. But it is wrong, or at least extraordinarily dangerous, to love money. This is affirmed throughout the pages of Scripture. And probably one of the the most poignant places in Scripture where where we see this is in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, which 
many biblical scholars, not all, but most biblical scholars believe was written by King Solomon, who was one of the richest individuals in all of history. And this is what it says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now somewhere along the way, the the false teachers in the church of Ephesus didn't heed the warnings of Ecclesiastes. And so they pursued the love of money, and it drove them to wander away from the faith, and they ultimately got what's promised in verse 10 of 1 Timothy 6. They pierced not only themselves, but others with many pangs. So when you and I seek satisfaction in the things of the world, we can be confident we're not only going to wreck our lives. We're going to wreck other people's lives in the process. So the question then becomes, what's the alternative? The alternative is to seek satisfaction in the things of God where we ultimately find contentment and joy. Look again at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, in contrast to how the false teachers believed that they could obtain uh, gain through the twisted form of their twisted form of godliness, Paul offers what? He offers great gain through true godliness with contentment. But what exactly is this godliness coupled with contentment that he's talking about? It's being content with the gospel. It's, it's being content with God's word. It's, it's being content with the truth of God's word. It's taking God's word at face value and, and not manipulating it in some effort to, to meet one's personal preferences or, or to assuage one's guilt by declaring what's evil to be good and what's good to be evil. Because that's our tendency. Our tendency is to take God's word as long as we like what it says. But as soon as it, it goes against what we, what we want, how we want to live or what we want to do, or maybe how our kids are living or our friends are living or our society is living, we, we very quickly want to manipulate God's word to make it say what we want it to say and not what it ultimately really says. You see, how many people do, they play fast and loose with God's word and they embrace false teaching simply because They don't want to feel guilty about that which they're doing. There's conviction. And we don't want to be convicted. Or they want to be accepted by our popular culture. Believing in this will never get you accepted by our popular culture. Coming coming to this place will not get you accepted by our popular culture. You will be uh, reviled, castigated. People will not like you. If you want to to be approved by the world, you you will not want this. Because this is completely countercultural. Or they have a loved one who is far from God. And they don't want to potentially alienate him or her. 
And unfortunately, it never works. We can twist God's word as much as we want. But at the end of the day, we will ultimately find pain and disillusionment. Look at what is happening right now in the United Methodist denomination. Over the last probably 20 plus, maybe 30 plus years, that denomination has embraced false teaching and uh, have turned their eye, uh, a blind eye, to sexual sin. They're on the path to uh, celebrating same-sex marriage. They're on a journey to ordain and affirm homosexuals, uh, gay folks uh, who are pa- or want to be pastors. And what is the byproduct of that? Has that brought everybody together? Has, has twisting what is very clear in God's word, has it made that, that denomination grow? That's an, they are bleeding people like crazy right now. On top of that, over the, the last few years where, where they have allowed churches to actually leave the denomination and keep their property, over 6,000 United Methodist churches in America, that's 20% of all the churches, have left that denomination in order to be free of heresy. When you twist God's word, all you do is bring pain and suffering. Now, this contentment that Paul speaks about comes from a healthy, and I might add, realistic view of life, both temporal and eternal. Look at verses 7 and 8. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. You see, if we're going to be truly satisfied in this world, we need to remember that as Christ followers, we are actually citizens of another world. This place is not our home. We, we are simply passing through here. We, 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 if we are truly eternal beings, this is just, it, it's, it's a rest stop on, on the turnpike of eternity. That's all that this is. In 1 Peter 2, Jesus' best friend reminds us of our true citizenship. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, for the Christian, our lives, they're not tied just to here. This is temporal. This is not eternal. When we arrived in the world, what Paul has taught us here is we arrived the same way, every one of us. We arrive naked, devoid of any possessions, and most probably ticked off after leaving this nice, comfortable place in our mother's womb and being thrust into the world. And then the fact of the matter is when we leave, folks, we go out the same way. 
We might be clothed, but that clothes doesn't last long in the coffin. And we certainly are devoid of any possessions. And probably the, the most notable example of this, in, in the 13th uh, century B.C., there was a king by the name of King Tut, right? He, he dies, and, and they bury him. And what do they They bury him with all his gold, all of his possessions, all of his stuff. Because what? They think it's going to go with him into eternity. And you and I, right now, can take a trip to Giza in Egypt, the third largest city in Egypt. And everything that King Tut thought was going to go with him to the afterlife, we get to see all of it because it stays here. So when we come to embrace this truth, that at the end of the day our possessions go to somebody else, and those possessions ultimately go to another person, then we can start to hold things a whole lot looser. And when we do, we're in the position to embrace verse 8 of chapter 6. But if we have clothing and food, with these we will be content. What do we really need? We need food and shelter. Everything else, folks, is just a bonus. But more than simply food and shelter, we need this gospel of Christ in all of its simplicity and beauty. Because that's where true satisfaction comes from. In a couple weeks, we're going to be making our way into 2 Timothy, and I'm going to steal a little thunder from that. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. For It's not on the big screen, by the way. For reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that the man and woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What do we ultimately need? We need the gospel. We need to understand, every one of us, that we are a sinful, fallen person. And that we are dealing with a holy God who cannot allow any sin to dwell with him. Because the moment that God allows sin into his presence, he is no longer holy. And that means we have an enormous problem. Because how can a sinful person like Mike Leonzo dwell with a holy God? How does that happen? The gospel comes along and says, well, God loved us so much, what, that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, what, to come to this earth to live a life of righteousness which I am incapable of living and which you are incapable of living. Jesus came and did what you and I cannot do. And in the process, he fully satisfied his dad's righteous demands. But he went a step further. He goes to the cross, and on the cross of Calvary, and you understand this, 
He takes your sin and he takes my sin upon himself. And the God of the universe, in his righteous wrath against sin, pours out all of his anger on his son. Because his son became sin for us. And God satisfies his wrath against your sin and my sin by crushing his son. And then three days later, his son crushes death and is raised again to life. So that when you and I confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that you and I are saved. That, brothers, that is what will ultimately bring contentment. Because wherever we are right now, whatever our lives are like right now, whether we're, we're married or not married, want to get married, don't want to be married anymore, whether our kids are doing great, aren't doing great, whether our health is wonderful, or we're in the ICU, whether we've got lots of money, no money, whether we like our job, don't like our job, regardless of whatever it is, the fact of the matter is, contentment is only ever found in the gospel. That's where it's found. That is where great gain is found. And you and I need to figure out how to live that out. Because if we embrace the things of this world, we will only reap destruction. But when we embrace the things of God, we reap great, great joy. And it is a blessing not only to us, but to those who are around us. Let's pray together. Lord God, you are truly faithful. Father, thank you that you are where we find our satisfaction. Lord God, would you forgive us for all of those times that we, we try to find satisfaction in other things, in, in relationships, in, in possessions, in savings accounts or retirement funds or, or intimacy with other people, whatever it might be, where we kick you to the curb and we pursue the things this world has to offer. Lord, forgive us for that. And Lord, would you heal us from the pain and suffering that comes from doing that? And would you work in our lives like you worked in Brother Jim's life. Lord, when he didn't even know you, that you were pursuing him and drawing him to yourself, dear God. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the truth of your word. Forgive us for when we don't want to follow it because it doesn't fit with the things that we desire. Help us to have a passion for your word. Help us to have a passion for others. Lord, help us to be hope and light in a dark hopeless world. And now, Father, as we prepare to take this offering, dear God, I pray that you would uh, bless those who, who give, uh, Lord, whether they give uh, through the mail or online or uh, here in person. Lord, would you bless those who desire to give and struggle to do so right now? God, would you provide a way for them to do it? And Lord God, would you help this church not to be a lover of money? Help us, Heavenly Father, to to use money to love others and not to love money to use others, dear God. For you are good and holy and just. And it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.